calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Ancestor, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Ancestor is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash ancestor. November 11th, two for the price of one. Implantation plus two days. Inside the C-5's lower deck, Jean watched Tim move the handheld transducer across Cow 34's belly. An overhead harness looped under the cow's legs, hips, and chest, holding her off the ground and supporting all of her weight. The transducer fed data into the portable ultrasound workstation positioned just outside Cow 34's stall. Dr. Rumkorf sat in front of the workstation, his small behind parked on a wooden stool, his hands toying with buttons and absently caressing a black trackball. Above those controls sat a video monitor that showed nothing but a blue progress bar, just over half full, with words above it that read 52%. In her career, Jeanne had seen ultrasound evolve from grainy, two-dimensional black-and-white images to three-dimensional representations showing depth from a top-down perspective, then to what they had now full, rotatable 3D models with animated images showing the natural movements of an in utero animal. 75%. No mistaking the electricity in the air, the satisfaction at seeing years of work move steadily closer to the final product. 82%. Let's not get excited, Rumkorf said, even though he was the only one talking. He absently swayed a bit from side to side as he waited for the image to process. When Erica, I mean, when Dr. Hall and I brought the quagga back from extinction, it took 52 implantation cycles before we corrected the genome enough to produce a live birth. 88%. Jeanne felt relieved, invigorated, even light. She'd lost some weight in the past few weeks, partly from forgetting to eat, partly from the haunting stress that kept her stomach pinched all the time. Just two days after implantation, a normal mammalian embryo would be nothing but a tiny red dot jutting from the uterine wall, kind of like a big wet pimple. But according to her calculations, and the astronomical growth rate they'd seen in the in vitro embryos, what lay inside Cal-34's womb would be much bigger. 94%. Tim's hand continued to move the transducer across the suspended cow's belly. He looked sleepy, 
maybe a little drunk. Again. He hadn't smiled since they'd landed. Back on Baffin, Tim was always smiling. 100% processing. The progress bar filled up, then a golden-hued image flared to life. She stared at the screen. Tim walked out of the stall, saw the screen, and stopped cold. Oh, fuck me running, he said quietly. Jean slowly shook her head in disbelief. She'd known they would grow fast. She'd coded for it. But this? Jean, Roomcore said. You are even more talented than I imagined. The ultrasound image revealed two fetuses pushed into a tight, face-to-face embrace. Roomcore slowly moved his right hand over the trackball, turning the 3D image to examine the tiny fetal features. Oversized heads had already formed, each bigger than the rest of their respective bodies. Big black spots showed developing eyes. Tiny limb buds sprouted from the bodies. She saw the ghostly shape of forming internal organs. Feely, Rumkorf said. How big would you say those embryos are? Uh, at least eight ounces. Tim's voice dropped to barely a whisper. Maybe even a little more. Normal embryonic growth for a 200-pound mammal should be less than a tenth of an ounce. Eighty times the normal growth rate, Rumkorf said. That's even higher than you projected, John. Fantastic. Fantastic. Was that the right word to describe it? No, it was not. From a single cell to a half pound in less than 48 hours. She should have felt elated. But instead, she felt afraid. And she wasn't quite sure why. November 11th. It's all about the Benjamins. Implantation plus two days. Colonel Paul Fisher stood at the edge of a Brazilian rainforest, staring up into the dark canopy. Never in all his days had he felt this drained, this utterly exhausted. His feet hurt. His eyes burned. This kind of sleep deprivation and world-hopping schedule would grind a 20-something into the ground and Paul was pushing 50. Amgen had built its xenotransplantation facility in the middle of the deep jungle. A stunning view surrounded the compound, mostly because there were no roads to tarnish the tree line. Amgen had used helicopters to bring everything in and out. Behind Paul, the Special Threats CBRN team was moving through the compound, completing their mission of seizing the facility and shutting down Amgen's research. A bird sailed from one tree to another. Paul wondered what kind it was. Maybe after all this crap was over, he could retire, come back down here and spend months cataloging all the bird species just for the fun of it. Before he could contemplate retirement, however, he had to finish the job. Approaching footsteps called his attention away. He turned to face the approaching special threat soldier. This one was bigger than most and put off a more frightening vibe than anyone Paul had ever known. He wore a mop suit without the hood, exposing his thin blonde buzz cut and a mass of scar tissue where his right ear should have been. The man carried an FNP-90 in his right hand and a sat phone in his left. Colonel Fisher, sir, 
Fisher tried in vain to remember the man's name, then cheated, and looked at the name patch on the man's left breast. What is it, Sergeant O'Doyle? Mr. Longworth would like a status report. O'Doyle handed over the sat phone. Paul took it. O'Doyle took a step forward and stared out at the tree line, both hands now on the P-90 submachine gun. Paul lifted the sat phone. It felt like it weighed 8,000 pounds. This is Fisher. Colonel, Murray Longworth said. How's it look? We've secured the place. No biohazard warnings. Everything looks fine. Of course everything looked fine. The Novozyme accident had been a fluke. Paul and the special threats team had flown to four continents and shut down five facilities in the last three days, and he'd known there wouldn't be an issue as long as no one was dumb enough to put up a fight. Nice work, Colonel, Longworth said. The only one left is Janata, wherever the hell they went. Any progress on that? Nothing, Longworth said. Like they vanished. Colding is good. Paul nodded to no one. Colding was good. Back when they'd worked together in USAMRID, Paul had never suspected just how good Colding could be. Nothing on freezing Janata's accounts? Can't we flush them out that way? Switzerland, Cayman Islands, and China refused to cooperate with that. All three countries believe the eco-terrorist attack was real and that Janata's out of the game. Dante Paglione does a lot of business in those countries, so they won't freeze his assets unless we have something concrete to show that Janata is still doing xenotransplantation research. Keep digging, Colonel. Find me something tangible to take to those governments. Anything from the Russians on Poroskova? Nothing yet, sir, Paul said. But their effort is encouraging. For over a year, Paul had been trying to get the Russians' help in tracking down Galina Poroskova, former Janata employee and whistleblower. Russian authorities had been mostly unresponsive, but all of that had changed in the last three days. Several Russian agencies had called Paul directly, asking what he needed and how they could help. Near as Paul could estimate, the Russians had at least 50 investigators searching for any sign of Poroskova. Well, that's something, Longworth said. How long until they find her? They think maybe four, five days. Good. I'll keep bird-dogging on my end. I have Interpol and other agencies cooperating. We'll figure this out, Colonel. Just stick with it. Yes, sir, Paul said, then handed the sat phone to O'Doyle. Paul wondered just how tired he had to sound if Murray Longworth felt the need to bust out a pep talk. But however tired he sounded, it wasn't half as tired as he felt. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
November 11th, Gallery and or Jugs. Implantation plus two days. Andy Crossway shifted his brown grocery bag to his left hand, sighed contentedly, then punched in the code 0000 on the security room door. Inside, the familiar rack of weapons was waiting for him. Real weapons that could do real damage. Not that the Beretta 96 was a toy. The magazine held 1140 caliber rounds, plus one in the chamber, and he always had one in the chamber, for 12 shots of solid stopping power. It wasn't his favorite, but the 96 was better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Still, he far preferred the Heckler & Koch MP5 submachine gun. Magnus provided the 40 caliber variant, providing for consistent ammo with the Beretta sidearms. The MP5s had 30-round magazines and fired at 800 rounds a minute. Accurate at 100 meters, the thing turned deer into hamburger on the hoof and killed humans dead. Andy pulled one of the MP5s out of the rack and carried it over to the security monitor table. He tossed down his tattered brown paper bag. It landed on its side and tipped, spilling copies of jugs and gallery across the desktop. He sat, hands caressing the weapon's well-known curves and angles. He'd break it down, clean it, and put it back together. At least it was something to do while taking his completely unnecessary shift. What a fucking joke. No one was going to find them here. He scanned the monitors anyway. The desk setup looked identical to the one on Baffin Island. More of Magnus's consistency. Why pay money to train people on multiple systems when you can just train them once and install the same system in all locations? Made sense. Everything Magnus did made sense. Andy checked the infrared feeds of the area surrounding the mansion and the hangar. The infrared worked just fine and showed nothing. He switched back to the black and white pictures of the grounds, the inside of the mansion. Several of the little five-inch monitors were blacked out. Typical colding. No monitoring private rooms except for that suicidal Chinese bitch. But what about the mythical Room 17? Sarah's room. Yep, the camera was off. He set the MP5 on the desktop, then flipped a switch. Sure enough, the screen lit up, showing the inside of Sarah Pernham's room. There she was, on her bed. Too dark, though. He scanned the controls. Ah, yes, night vision. He pushed a button and saw Sarah Pernham's naked upper body gleam in green-tinged glory. Just a B-cup, but he'd still do her. She, however, would not do him. The dyke. Paybacks are a bitch, you tall twat. He watched her sleep. He would keep an eye on her, wait for her to slip up. One way or another, figuratively or literally, Sarah Pernam was going to get fucked. November 12th, The Thing in the Car. Implantation plus three days. The next morning, Colding, Clayton, and Sarah rode along in Clayton's Humvee. No nuge that morning, but regardless, Colding kept his window rolled up tight. They reached the fork that led to the harbor. This time, Clayton took the road on the left. More trees, more snow, more collapsed houses. 
Five minutes later, the trees ended, giving way to the old town. Clayton pulled into the town center, a stone-paved circle about 50 yards in diameter. Some of the snow-dusted stones were broken or just plain missing. A few small trees grew up through some of the gaps. An old well made up of the same broken stone sat smack in the circle's center. Some of the stones had crumbled away and lay on the ground like rotted-out teeth. The well looked like some B-movie version of a trapdoor to hell. Clayton stopped the Hummer. The three of them got out and started walking. Welcome to downtown Black Manitou, Clayton said. I'm sure a city boy like you will feel right at home, eh? Sure, Colding said. I'll bet the opera house is right over the next hill. The town's structures were in marginally better shape than the dilapidated houses out in the woods. Buildings lined the paved area like numbers on a clock. With due north at noon, ten o'clock was the gothic Blackstone Church. The thick building dominated the town circle, squatting down like a granite bulldog. It seemed to have so much weight, the rest of the town might rise up at any moment, the light end of a lopsided teeter-totter. The few windows looked original, their glass visibly warped, giving the solid structure an almost fluid appearance. A bell tower, noticeably absent a bell, rose like a pinnacle from the steep slate roof. Clayton pointed to a green building about 20 feet from the church at the 8 o'clock position. The window was still decorated with a faded yellow banner cut in the shape of a star that said, Ground Chuck on Sale. Inside, Colding saw empty racks and shelves. That used to be Betty's, Clayton said. Combination grocery and hardware store. She was still here when Dante bought everyone out. At 7 o'clock, the road out of town ran between Betty's and a red building with a moth-eaten moose head hung over the door. One glass eye was long since missing. Shreds of moose fur hung down like demonic streamers. That was Sven Ballantyne's hunter shop, Clayton said. He ran it during deer season. Magnus and that surly little prick Andy Crossway came up about five years ago and went wild. Killed every last deer. Cut their heads off. Took a picture right by that well. Jesus, Colding said. I didn't know Magnus was such a conservationist. Pissed me off to no end, eh? Deer been here since 1948, when an ice bridge connected the island and the mainland. Deer just walked over. Colding gave Clayton an untrusting look. An ice bridge. Yep. From the mainland, Sarah said. Three hours away. Yep. Sarah shook her head. Clayton, you are so full of shit you'd float. It can't get cold enough to make ice cover that much open water. Clayton hawked a loogie and spat it on one of the mottled paving stones. You'll see ice everywhere in another week. In a normal winter, Apple Bay will have ice two feet thick by the end of November. This winter? Gonna be cold. Maybe coldest ever. He gestured at a rustic building made out of hewn logs and rough wooden beams, sitting at about four o'clock, directly across from the church. Other than the church, it was the town's only two-story building. The mansion you're staying at was for the rich folk, but plenty of regular people came to Black Manitou Lodge here to hunt and relax. A few more wooden buildings dotted the town circle. All had peeling paint. Some sagged under rotted, moss-covered roofs. There wasn't a soul in sight. Clayton, Sarah said, I think you forgot that thing in the car. The old man looked at her, then nodded. 
My gosh, I think you're right, eh? Be back in a jiffy. Clayton turned and walked quickly to the Hummer. Colding looked at Sarah. The thing? The thing, she said. In the car. Clayton reached the Hummer, got in, started it up, then drove down the road right out of town. Colding watched the black vehicle vanish into the woods, heading for the mansion. You told Clayton to strand us? Sarah nodded. That's right. Huh. Wouldn't the joke be better if you were in the vehicle with him? No joke this time. I wanted your undivided attention. He looked at her, looked close. The pissiness was gone. She seemed all business. Okay, he said. I'm listening. Almost right. I'm the one who's going to listen. You're going to tell me some things. How you came to work for Janata, how you found me and my crew, and why you had that one amazing night with me and then vanished. Sarah, we... Now, PJ, you will tell me now. We had a connection. I thought I was being a girly girl about that, deluding myself. But in the past couple of days, I'm pretty sure my initial instinct with you was right. We did connect, didn't we? He could lie. He could just say no, walk back to the mansion and be done with it. Instead, he nodded. She smiled a little. Some of the tension seemed to drain out of her. Good. That's good. So, make like a stoolie and spill. He looked around the town. They really were in the middle of nowhere. At least a 30-minute walk back to the mansion. Fuck it. Why not? I was in the Army. Used to work for USAMRIT, the Army's division to protect service people from biological threats. I met my wife there, Clarissa. She was a virologist. We were married for two years, then there was an accident. Have you heard of H5N1? Sarah shook her head. Bird flu. Terracell was trying to bring it into America the old-fashioned way, by infecting their own people and shipping them over. CIA caught them. You Samrid was called in to see if we could help the carriers. Long story short, proper restraint precautions were not followed. The guy in charge, Colonel Paul Fisher, he decided to treat the carriers like human beings instead of the terrorist animals they were. One of them, one of them got loose, tore off my wife's mask and coughed and spit in her face. Sarah's eyes widened with fear. She was probably imagining herself in Clarissa's shoes. Trying to, anyway. Who could really know what it felt like to have someone breathe death in your face? Colding continued. He couldn't stop himself now. They brought Clarissa to an ICU. She caught pneumonia and got through that. But the bird flu gave her viral myocarditis. Which is? Viral infection of the heart. Came on particularly fast for her. Damaged the muscle tissue, made her heart weak, made it swell. Basically, destroyed it. Sarah's hand went to her mouth. She was such a tomboy, but that gesture of empathy for a dead woman she'd never met ached with femininity. Couldn't they give her a transplant? She still had the virus in her system. There's no way to be sure it wouldn't just infect a new heart. They, they can't afford to waste replacement organs on someone who's a risk. Because of the shortage of organs, Sarah said, nodding a little. Sadness filled her eyes. They put her on a ventilator. After a couple of days, they... Well, they told me there was no hope for recovery. 
She was in so much pain, so weak. She slipped under before we could make a decision, so I had to make it for her. I knew she wouldn't have wanted to suffer, and it was only a matter of time. He had to stop for a second. He hadn't talked about it to anyone, not since it happened. Doing so dredged up vivid memories, like it was happening all over again. Clarissa's hands, so weak they couldn't hold his, so he held hers. Before they put her on the ventilator, he told her it would be okay. She'd answered in her weak voice that he was being stupid. She knew what was happening inside her body. Better than anyone, probably, because she was dying from something she'd studied for a decade. Sarah reached out and touched his upper arm. You ended it for her. You took away her pain? He nodded. The tears were coming now. He couldn't stop them anymore. Her eyes still closed, eyes that would never open again. The nurse pulling the IVs, removing the breathing tube. Her breaths coming in tiny, shallow gasps. The nurse walking out, shutting the door, leaving the two of them together to ride it out to the end. Till death do them part. Sarah's hand on his arm, gently sliding up and down. What did you do then? More memories, just as vivid. The rage he'd felt. All his sorrow and hurt channeled into pure aggression. I got in my car and went to see Fisher. To talk to him? No, Colding said. To kill him. I tackled him as soon as I saw him. Really fucked up his knee. His face was a sheet of blood by the time they pulled me off. Army was going to court-martial me, but Fisher pulled strings. Got me a dishonorable discharge, and I was out. What did you do then? Nothing, Colding said. Sat on my ass for six months, got fat, felt sorry for myself. Collected unemployment, missed my wife. Then Dante Paglione called me. Janata was trying to solve the organ shortage problem. They had multiple lines of experimentation, but one involved getting women to carry transgenic animal pregnancies. Carrie, are you kidding me? Is that even legal? Nope. A Janata scientist named Galina Poroskova ratted out the experiment to Fisher. Dante had a second line of research that would solve the organ shortage problem forever, but if Fisher busted them for the human experiments, that second line would never be completed. I offered to come aboard, but only if Dante scrapped the human experimentation for good. Wasn't what he wanted to hear, but Dante needed me. I knew how Fisher worked, how USAMRED operated. Dante shut down the experiments. By the time Fisher got to Janata, there was no evidence of wrongdoing. Dante's smart, Sarah said. Ruthless, but smart. Hire the guy who would do anything to stop people from dying the way his wife died, right? Transparent as hell, but also dead on. And Tim? How did he come into the picture? He did some contracting for you, Samrit, Colding said. Research stuff. That's where I met him. He was a double PhD candidate in genetics and bioinformatics. I know some of the science, but needed my own guy to make sure Janata was staying honest. I hired him to come along for the cleanup. Once Galena left, Dante threw money at him to make him stay and replace her. But how did Dante find you? How did he know about you and Fisher, about your wife? Same way he found you when I had the idea for the C5. Magnus and Dante have a high-level contact, from the NSA, I think. The contact can get at all kinds of service records and more. 
We found you, found out you were behind on payments for your 747. Then I came to talk to you, and what happened, happened. Yeah, Sarah said. I remember. Which brings us full circle. Why didn't you at least call me or say goodbye? You gotta understand. My wife had been dead all of seven months when I met you. You talked about a connection? Well, I felt it too, but I couldn't feel that way when her grave was barely cold. I couldn't betray her memory like that. Sarah stepped forward until their chests touched. She reached up and caressed his cheek, her fingertips somehow warm despite the frigid temperature. No wonder you're so gung over this project, Peach. I thought you were a rotten douchebag, but now I know I was wrong. You're not all that rotten. Colding laughed. Wow, am I glad I bared my soul to you. Her smile faded, and she touched his cheek again. Any woman would just melt inside if she knew how you felt, Peach. You did what you thought was right, to honor your wife's memory. But now she's been gone a lot longer than seven months. It's okay to move on with your life. Colding leaned toward Sarah and kissed her. Her lips were soft and warm, and he forgot all about the cold. You have been listening to Ancestor by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling-medical-investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.